Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The midterm elections brought out about 1.7 million, 76 million voters here in Tennessee, but not everyone who could vote did. In fact, less than 40 percent of registered voters in our state cast a ballot in this year's midterms. That's not including those of us who wanted to vote, but can't. Our state has one of the highest rates of voter disenfranchisement in the country. Later this hour, we'll hear from a few of these folks and talk with experts about why voter turnout is so low in our state. But first, after Mayor John Cooper struck a $2.1 billion agreement with the Tennessee Titans to build a brand new stadium, a lot of Nashvilleans pushed back. Why is a new stadium a priority? And who is going to foot the bill? As the year draws to a close, activity in Nashville's East Bank is picking up. A long-delayed rezoning of the River Chase apartment complex has been approved, and the debate has only gotten more heated. WPLN's Ambriel Crutchfield has been following this story, and she joins us now with an update. Hey, Ambriel, welcome back. Hey, what's up? Nothing much. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a long, not week since I was on the show. <laughs> yes, yes, it has. Always happy to have you here with us. So, you know, it was about a month ago when Mayor Cooper and the Tennessee Titans struck this $2.1 billion deal to build mm-hmm. a new domed stadium. Recap the details for us. Right. So just to place people where current Nissan Stadium is, uh, the stadium will move closer east to the interstate. Um, and right now, that's just parking lots for Nissan Stadium. The goal is for, touris- for tourism is to be bringing in big, big events like WrestleMania, the Super Bowl, and trying to take another swing at hosting the World Cup, because as we know, we didn't get it this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, city leaders that support this include the mayor, head of tourism, chamber of commerce, and they're all getting around the language that this is going to shift money from taxpayers onto the Titans. Um, but economists aren't really having that assessment. And last night at a community meeting, a resident uh, was bringing up the point that, yes, it might bring some relief to Nashville property owners, but questioned how to impact renters, which make up a majority of the city. Wait one second. How would that money work out? So taxpayers aren't picking up the tab? Right. So there's like four different ways, mainly, that they're planning to uh have this payout. One is the football-related sources like the Titans, NFL, PSL sales. Second is a $500 million contribution for the state, but that is for an enclosed stadium, so it's contingent on it going that specific way. The third is from hospitality. So when tours and visitors throughout the county uh, go to a hotel, the city would be able to increase the tax by 1%. um, And then and I want you to kind of hold that in your mind. And okay. then the fourth thing would be the stadium campus itself. It would have a unique kind of sales tax that it's capturing. All right. So you wanted me to remember the 1% hotel tax. Why? What, what's up with that? Yes. Actually, sorry. I got myself all confused. <laughs> the stadium <laughs> campus tax is what we need to be remembering. Okay. So that is one way the city will pay for the enclosed stadium is through that sales tax collected from the campus. So that money would go towards the bill. But Kennesaw State University economics professor, J.C. Bradbury says that plan makes takes money from the pot that funds city services. So the example he gave is like, say, you know, I go eat at Opry Mills. Okay, 
I could that money would be going to city services widely. But if we had this tax, if I go and eat uh, at the stadium, then that money would just be pulled to go to the football stadium. It wouldn't go to things like schools, et cetera. Mm. Um, And Bradbury says Nashville would be fronting the money for a project that often doesn't make its money back for the economy. So what has happened since this deal was struck? Yes. So the Metro Council, the East Bank Committee, they're both talking about the Titan Stadium and the new downtown neighborhood East Bank that has been discussed. So they've really been coming through the numbers. They've been hearing from experts like Bradbury, who I just mentioned, but also like the head of tourism in the city. And last night they started hearing from community members. So how does this stadium fit into where the city is headed overall? Right. So the city is working, like I kind of mentioned, is working to transform this area into a new downtown neighborhood along the east side of the Cumberland River. So this would surround the stadium, whether we keep what we have and renovate it or if we build an enclosed stadium. But if we build a new enclosed stadium, that's going to provide more flexibility for city planners. Um, So in this neighborhood, city officials are pitching it as a chance to design from scratch. So creating housing, transportation and cultural institutions for current day needs. And this whole gateway into East Nashville is about to be transformed like crazy because Mm. Oracle is also working on their hub um, to the north. Plus, when you go under the I-24 bridge, places like River Chase that used to uh, offer low cost housing are gone. Casey Homes has been changed. So we're slowly starting to see the transformation of another part of town. Mm. You know, you mentioned this before, but Metro Council has started having meetings to assess this plan. Mm -hmm. Since they're the ones who will have to approve the deal, what are they saying? Yeah, they've been asking a lot of small and big questions. Like, really, I would be thinking of the council as like the gateway of like questions that residents might have that mm-hmm. aren't very, they're trying to like poke holes and get an understanding of what the mayor and, you know, the finance department have already presented as like the facts that are. So, but a major thing that has come up in later later meetings has been how this will change the trajectory of the city and where money is spent. Um, and also like things like how will it connect and impact nearby institutions like the American Baptist College. Um, The main concern seems to be managing growth better than we've done it in the past. I know the head of tourism, he mentioned like this. They don't want this to be a mirror of lower Broadway. They want this to be a very distinct and different neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And then there are people like Councilmember Courtney Johnson, who's been questioning why we haven't fully explored, um, you know, basic renovations to the stadium that we currently have. Because even when we've seen images, it's been like really wild, different high <laughs> yeah. level renovations. You mentioned last night the public got to weigh in on this for the first time at a Metro Council committee meeting. What did you hear from folks out there? Yeah, so last night we were at the uh, East Magnet High School, and I heard a variety of things. Like there were people that work in the hotel industry and were like, yeah, we do our whole strategy based on football games and like people coming in town. And they even mentioned like, yeah, you remember that Garth Brooks when it had to be put off because of the weather and this and that? Well, if we had an enclosed stadium, that wouldn't be the case. Mm. Um, So there were people making that kind of pitch. There were other people that were pitching like, okay, how is this going to impact and how are we investing in neighborhoods that are around our HBCUs? Um, You know, some were in support because of the financial relief and like being able to develop in this neighborhood in a way that in this area that we haven't and are not using. So there was quite a mix. One thing that was really interesting to me, because (laughs) don't judge me, but I was on a party bus uh, like in the late summer and we went over the interstate and I was like, oh, my God, like, look at all the traffic. It was backed up. And a guy named Logan Key, he is an East Nashville resident. He mentioned, like, what are we going to be doing 
uh, to get in and off the interstate because right now it's gridlock. And especially if you look at like a Monday and Thursday night when people are just trying to do their regular motions, Mm -hmm. it's like jamming stuff up. And he's like, I haven't heard that be an essential part of the conversation. So residents are definitely like filling in this picture that there are going to be a lot of things to be considering. Okay, well, what's next for this? Yes. So there are actually going to be several more uh, community meetings, three more actually, all starting at 6 p.m. on different parts of town. So on next Monday, Southeast Community Center is going to be next up. December 1st will be the William Bodenhamer building. And December 7th will be at the Bellevue Community Center. So that's a chance for anybody that's a national resident to go and make your voice heard or just hear what your neighbors are thinking and talk. Um, as for the project, the council has already approved two, or they're considering two resolutions um, that are coming up, and there might be some delay in doing that next year when there's more time. Ambriel Crutchfield is WPLN's Metro reporter and party bus traffic monitor. You can find her story on the proposed stadium at WPLN.org. Ambriel, as always, thanks for being here and thanks for your reporting. Can't wait to monitor more traffic. <laughs> We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about our low voter turnout with a few folks who didn't vote. We know there are a lot of reasons why people don't vote, and we want to understand. So if you chose not to vote or weren't allowed to, tell us why. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I remember the first time I voted. There I was, a second-year college student eager to practice my civic duty with most of my peers. It was an exciting time for me. I was full of hopeful energy that my vote would make a difference. Perhaps it did. Over the years, I continued to vote, but admittedly, not every time. Sure. I showed up for the big general and midterm elections, but the primaries, local races, or special ballot measures, I sat those out. As a person who has the right to vote, the decision to abstain from the process is, well, it's my right. But as a citizen, I have to live with the results of the election and my choices. And what if I lost the right to vote? Would that make it more valuable to me? Or would I still have chosen to stay home on election day for other reasons? Joining me now to talk about the right to vote and the choice are Shayla Dare from Antioch and Barbie Brown from White House, Tennessee. Barbie, Barbie, Shayla, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, I want to start off by learning why you both don't vote. Barbie, I understand that you never had the chance to vote. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. As an 18-year-old girl... Uh, from Montgomery County, Tennessee, I was incarcerated, um, thus legally disenfranchised, and that continues till today. Do you come from a family of active voters? I don't. I could not actually uh, recall any point in the past where um, I saw a family member take an interest in and voting or local politics at all. What were the conversations about politics that you can remember, if any? You know, I can't necessarily remember any. Um, we all form our opinions as 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 we watch television of, you know, the right and wrong answers to political questions or um, how the president's doing. I grew up during the time of the Gulf War crisis, um, mm-hmm. so there was a, a heavy a heavy saturation of political conversations on our TV every night. 
Um, so I think the ex- extent of our conversations were, hey, this is this is not good. Mm. Um, this should be done differently. But how and uh, voicing your opinion on how that should be done differently is not something I can ever recall happening. Well, how do you think that influenced your desire to participate in elections? Growing up again, I was... As a teenager, truthfully, I was on the path leading to incarceration. So at that point, no one was really talking to me about um, voting rights and my role in our democracy um, and how I can actually participate in in the laws that would uh, eventually incarcerate me for 17 years. Mm. Um, So no one was talking about that. Uh, Post-release, I had the understanding that because I had one of those infamous crimes as defined by the state of Tennessee, that I was not allowed to voice an opinion or to have an opinion. Um, It was, again, just an extension of the idea that after we commit um, what the state or the federal government determines to be a crime, that we're less than, Mm. that we don't matter as much. And the the idea that I'm not allowed to voice my opinion really just reinforces that that ideal that I'm less than. Mm. So the idea of someone telling me that, hey, your opinion does not matter, makes me want it even more. Now, Shayla, what about you? Did you come from a family of active voters? No, but I, I know my mom voted here and there when I was a younger person. It wasn't something that was a heavy focus of family discussion either. Uh, but I really relate to, if I can say, I really relate to a lot of what Barbie said. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I don't have the same experience, but my mother was incarcerated when I was in high school and I had young little brothers. So that was a big thing for me because I had to kind of step into that role. But I remember that was when I was 15, and then after she came back, she was gone for like a year. And so I that was a big part of what informed why I just kind of a lot of what she said. It was an extension of that same. I mean, I can't speak to my mother's experience, but I remember thinking this isn't this isn't right. You know, there, there's a million reasons why she was in the situation she was in. Some of those I kind of personally thought, well, this is kind of a systemic problem. Mm. And so to think that she's disenfranchised forever because of, uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I just have a lot of anger about that. And like the f- extension of the feeling of just my voice doesn't matter, especially already being too young to vote, but like having to deal with like welfare and food stamps and deal with like witnessing my mother being incarcerated and deal with like when someone encounters the state or, you know, in quotes, like, it just makes you, I don't know, you kind of start to opt out as a form of rebellion, or at least in my experience. I was too young to vote when everyone else voted in high school in the uh, Obama, when Obama was voted president. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was like a big thing in my senior English class. Everybody was talking about it, and it was very exciting for a lot of people around me, and I didn't relate to that excitement because I'd already had all of this thought about it. And they may have had their own thoughts. I'm not trying to step over them. Yeah. It's just that I really relate to that, but on a different p- side of it. I wasn't incarcerated myself. I can't speak to how it feels to be, to have it taken from you, but I have voted here and there, but when I miss it, it's it, the reason why it's not the end of the world for me, which is something I talk to some friends about sometimes and they just don't get is a lot of that, you know, you know if that makes any sense at all. Well, you know, I, I understand you didn't vote in this past midterm Mid-terms, election. Right? Yeah, I didn't. I, I did intend to um, again, because of a lot of the reasons we're talking about, it's usually not top of my list. Um, and I don't know if it's just a rebellious nature in general and it's bad, but when people tell when people are really telling me to do something that often is like, it goes further down my list accidentally. So I was really trying to make it happen, but I moved last year. I got COVID shortly after I moved. It's just been a really busy year for me. A lot of stuff has happened. 
And uh, the last time I moved, I wasn't taking off the registration. I remember going, being able to vote there and changing my address and stuff. But this last time, you know, I was getting down to the wire. I was like, shoot, I got to do this if I want to do it. And I look at, um, I tried to look into my stuff and they had removed me from Mm. whatever, however it works. They had removed me from the registration roll or whatever, because my last place I lived in was knocked down. And I think maybe that, maybe that had something to do with the quickness of it. Cause the last time I had moved that it wasn't so quickly, uh, you know, they just took me right off within a year. Last time it was three years or so. And I was like, Oh, I haven't changed my address. So, you know, I mean, I, that made me even more angry. Like, okay, you know, some sort of conspiratorial thinking. Like, th- this was, they were really quick on that this time. So why should I even try? I mean, it was too late to try by then anyway. So does that make you feel like, you know, your vote doesn't matter when you, one, you didn't grow up in a in an environment where people voted a lot, and two, the obstacles to just staying registered or getting registered. Right. I mean, and it's like, it's the kind of stuff that people will say, well, you, it's easy. You can do it. People can do this. You can walk, you can do this. You can take a bus. You can get, you get this stuff taken care of. Well, it's a lot easier said than done. You know, there's a lot of little things to take care of and they add, you know, they add up and it's like time is, there's barely any time to do anything. You got to get to work, get home from work. I know these are common complaints, but like it really does have an impact on your life. And when it's not, when you haven't seen it affect the people around you and you've seen the people around you be in helpless positions and it doesn't, it makes no difference who's in, mm. who's president. I mean, you see that and you think, well, this doesn't really concern me. I mean, it does overall, the big picture. But again, am I am I really a piece of that big picture that everyone else feels like they're a part of? Mm. I got my own picture. You know, it's, it seems longer range. And so... Maybe, I don't know, sometimes I feel guilty about it because I want to participate and I want to participate because my mom can't participate. And I have some other friends that are also like we're incarcerated and can't vote. I want to participate on that mm-hmm. principle. But at the same time, there's more important principles. There's more important things to do, you know, real people's lives and mm-hmm. helping people around me. And so I'm not trying to say they have to be weighed against each other, but, but yeah, maybe you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel you. Now, Barbie, you got your education while you were in prison. Did you learn about civics and voting rights while you were pursuing your degree? You know, we did cover those topics, um, but it was such a, a general scope that we studied um, civics, et cetera, that I really didn't feel that it necessarily applied to my situation because the the heavier lift was the idea that I was legally disenfranchised. And what would that fight mean to get back in? Mm-hmm. And as Shayla talked about, I mean, we have like everyday concerns. These are real. Um, imagine post-release and now your everyday concern includes where are you going to live? Where are you going to work? What are you going to wear? What food are you going to eat? What are you going to say? What are you going to eat? Exactly. You can feed your kids. What are you going to, yeah. Precisely. So, I mean, like these everyday things that, that we all experience plus the barriers. So is it almost as if voting for some is a luxury? It can definitely be a luxury. I mean, I would call it a luxurious right Possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some folks probably take this for, for granted because, honestly, it's never been taken from you. It's never been in danger, thankfully, that it hasn't been for you. Um, but for those of us who, I mean, we've had it completely stripped or we've had it threatened, um, then it definitely becomes a luxury. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about voter turnout. My guests are Barbie Brown and Shayla Dare, two community members who didn't vote this year, but for very different reasons. And if y'all listening didn't vote or couldn't, we'd still love to hear from you. So tweet us at This Is 
Nashville. You know, um, we got a tweet in from Tom Johnson. He says, quote, a lot of disaffected voters will be drawn to the polls if they had more options than Democrats versus Republicans. We need to open the system to more and more diverse competition via electoral reforms such as nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting, end quote. Shayla, would any of these options make you more likely to vote regularly? I mean, it would. It's often a a thing you think about, I mean, at least for me, that like, you know, okay, so my options here are also pretty limited and limiting. So what really, you know, difference does it make if if it's not my ideal thing? But you can't, I mean, you can't be an idealist about it. That would definitely make me more likely to, you know, if there were some more comprehensive options, I think, that really related to my life and the lives of people I know and like the issues we care about, uh, I think that it would be Definitely. It would definitely make an impact on how likely I would be to get out there and vote. Um, when you guys talk to your peers and friends and family members and people in your community, how many of them are not enthused or excited to vote because of the choice of candidates or the issues that are on the ballot at the time? I'd say quite a few, but most of them, most of what I hear from my peers is excitement and like this is this is a time we get to, I'm so happy and grateful that I got to do this. And that's great that they feel that way. I want them to feel that way, but I just don't, I don't relate to that feeling at all. Cause I don't feel that grateful to choose, but be- again, choosing between, you know, something where it's just it's either way, it's not, it's not quite ideal. You can see the negative on both sides. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do see some apathy, I suppose, but not, not as much as I feel Mm-hmm. I guess I, 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 apathy is maybe the wrong word, but um, I hear a little bit of that, but it's it's usually followed up with all the reasons why. Again, it's very important that you do this because blah, blah, blah. So it doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter about all these reasons to be apathetic. What matters is that you go out and exercise this right, um, which, again, is a valid you know argument. I just I just see a lot less of it. But that's that may just be my, my experience. You know, it makes me think about laws and restrictions around voting. Some people think that the laws in Tennessee are designed to keep people from voting. Barbie is somebody who's fighting to retain, regain that right to vote yourself. How does that strike you? That's very true. Um, if we just look at the reinstatement policy um, for folks who are currently legally disenfranchised, not every Conviction will give you a lifetime ban, but some will. Um, but we then consider the, the the procedure to get your rights back, and it's terrifying. Mm. Um, literally, the first step is a, a completing a certificate of uh, restoration. But I cannot write on this piece of paper. I actually have to walk into a parole office, which I've never been in because I've never been on supervision, and request that someone research my case and fill this out for me. Um, to assure the state of Tennessee and the Election Council that I have, in fact, completed my sentence and would otherwise be eligible Mm. um, to vote. It's terrifying. Um, But if you look even closer into who are currently uh, folks do currently have a lifetime ban, there are a list of crimes in Tennessee that will give you that package of a lifetime ban. But then there are also situations such as not being up to date on child support or not um, paying your entire legal fee. These are legal poll taxes at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're still disenfranchising nearly half of a million people in Tennessee, many of whom could legally file for restoration of voting rights. 
but who may not be financially eligible to meet all of the criteria to be able to cast their own votes. So would you say we have a systemic problem? Oh, we definitely have a systemic problem. Um, Going back to literally probably the first or second constitution of Tennessee, um, we have disenfranchised people for hundreds of years. And only recently have we kind of started to narrow down that um, widening band of folks who we disenfranchise. Um, If you actually look at the current policies, crimes prior to 1973, 1971, someone will have to fact check me on that one. There was a list of probably 30 crimes that would give you a lifetime ban. Things such as... uh, Bigamy, things that we don't even look Mm. at as as a crime punishable by incarceration will strip folks of voting rights. Wow. Um, But now we've narrowed it down to 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 less crimes, but we're still systemically poll taxing folks who are justice impacted. You know, Shayla, what are your thoughts when you hear comments like what Barbie's making? Excuse me. Sorry. That's okay. Um, I I totally agree with everything you said. I mean, I like listening to Barbie talk because she's clearly a lot more knowledgeable on like the specific, you know, things than I am. And also you're knowledgeable and it's, you had your, you're knowledgeable about also being incarcerated and being disenfranchised. It's just really nice to listen to you talk about it in a way that's like educated and specific and, you know, you can't really argue with that. So it's, yeah, I agree with, it's nice to hear you talk about it. I I know there's a growing number of organizations that assist people with registering to vote and engaging in voter mobilization efforts. Have any of those organizations come to your community, Shayla, to talk to people about voting? I have no experience with any of those. I mean, yeah, no, I'm not I'm not aware of that. Any efforts there may have been in my neighborhood, but I haven't encountered anybody mm. doing that. So that was to be something that you both kind of see a greater need of, more organizations going out there, reaching out to people about getting them registered to vote and then actually influencing them to get to the polls as well. Barbie? Yeah, that's true. Um, we do have some great organization and great people in Nashville who are pushing this, um, this agenda. We have uh, Free Hearts, which is... Um, an organization that I'm happy to be a member of, led by Don Harrington. Um, we also have Jacola Lane, Jeremy White, pushing the uh, free the vote agenda. So there are folks who are reaching out to legally disenfranchised folks to say, hey, let's let's work through this law and let's let's navigate this so we can restore your voting rights. Um, but I have not come into contact with any organization who is reaching out to folks who are not disenfranchised hmm. to say, hey, let's participate in this in this government. You know, you're really politically active, even though you can't vote. That's a lot of motivation. What inspires you to keep up this fight? You know, I spent 17 years in a state prison from the age of 18 to 35. If I spent 17 years in prison and I don't turn around and look at those folks that I've left in that facility or that the folks who are still spread out across this state, then I've wasted 17 years of my life, my life. Um, so my voice comes from that experience and is um, related to a love for the folks who are still fighting the battle. What are you What are you doing to keep fighting this battle? I currently work as the director of policy with the Tennessee Higher Education Initiative in Nashville. Um, I have the privilege to work with students where THEI facilitates higher ed programs inside facilities. I have the privilege to work with students to uh, give them a voice to allow access to give them uh, a voice. They already have a voice, believe me. Mm-hmm. Um, and also see their reentry journey and say, you know, give little nuggets of wisdom to say, hey, what? Guess what? You can vote. Mm-hmm. You can find housing. I know where you can work as well. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's hard work and it's very fulfilling. What would you like to see change about our voting system? 
disenfranchisement, legal disenfranchisement, those two words don't sit comfortably beside each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would love for us to really redefine what that means and, 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 realize that we we can't continue to 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 punish folks for things that happened 30 40 50 years ago in some cases that everyone's voice is equal and everyone should have a voice so i would love for everyone in tennessee to have uh, full citizenship rights and be able to participate in our local and federal government shayla same question to you what would you like to see change about our voting system i would like to the things you said, of course, I agree with. Um, I was also like to see increased, you know, availability like of I, I again, I'm not super knowledgeable, but I've heard that it's pretty limiting and compared to some other states in terms of like polling locations and hours that you can vote and the time frame that you can vote. I don't know how true that is, but um, I mean, I, I came up against a limitation and I thought I was totally ready to go. So, I mean, it, it seemed pretty. It was 31 days I had to, like, wait in order to, like, change my address and all that. So that seemed ridiculous to me. I mean, it's a small administrative thing, I guess. Again, it could be my fault that I didn't update my address. But things like that should be quick and easy to – I mean, I I feel like I should be able to walk in and and change my address there and vote. Um, I don't know. So I just think it should be a lot more accessible and easy for working people. I know you're supposed to get time off to work. That doesn't always bear out in reality. Um, What do you think the powers – that be what do you want the powers that be to know about people who live in low voter voter turnout communities what would you like to see them do to help people regularly participate in elections show us that we matter show them that they matter show them that there is a reason for them to care a reason for them to be involved otherwise you're just saying please pay my way buy me a ticket and you never bought us a ticket anywhere Hmm. so that's kind of how i see it Now, Barbie, what do you want to say to anyone who does have the right to vote? Use it. Not everyone has this right. If you are afforded this luxurious uh, right that we've talked about today, use it. Shayla? Barbie, you just inspired—I mean, you've inspired me to be— I feel a lot of hopelessness, and that's part of like what a reason for some of my answers. And hopelessness can really stop you in your track. I mean, it, it's like demotivating. You know, it can really make it hard to do a lot of just simple things. So, hearing you talk is motivating because, you know, you you can't vote, but you you are so politically active, like Khalil said, and and it's inspiring to me because you're doing the kinds of things that I think are. It's just the kinds of things that I think are most important. It's, you're focusing on the things that I've focus on with my thoughts and you inspire me to know that, you know, there is a point you can be active. There's a point to just keep, you know, anywhere you can. So, ah, sorry, you're making me emotional, but (laughs) it's just so cool to be in here with you today. I just didn't expect that. So that's what I want to say to Barbie. (laughs) Just really inspire me. And I'm, I'm, again, this year I didn't intend to do it, um, but you've inspired me to be more, if it's, maybe it's all messed up, but um, screw it. You know, I'm just going to. Yeah, I'll just keep working on it. <laughs> you just added one to the numbers, y'all. Be Success. Moving. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that was serious. That was Shayla Dare of Antioch. She was joined by Barbie Brown with the Tennessee Higher Education in Prison Initiative. I want to thank you both for being here today. Thank you both for sharing your stories. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about why Tennessee has such a low voter turnout with some of the folks working to change those numbers. We want to hear about your experience this midterm election. Did you try to vote? 
but found out you couldn't? Did you choose not to vote? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about who exercises their right to vote in Tennessee and who doesn't. Before the break, we met two community members who did not vote in this year's midterms, but for very different reasons. Now, let's meet some of the people working to get more folks registered and out to the polls. Tequila Johnson is co-founder and co-executive director of the Equity Alliance, and Debbie Gold is the former president of the League of Women Voters Nashville chapter. Tequila, Debbie, thank you both so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, you know, the League of Women Voters has been working to protect and expand voting rights for more than 100 years. So it's safe to say that you have talked to a lot of people about voting. Debbie, what have people told you about why they don't vote? You know, there are a couple of reasons, many reasons, actually, and some of them are kind of voter-centric, where voters feel like their vote doesn't matter. And then there are other reasons that, should we say, are beginning state-centric, that are because of what government does that actually impedes and creates roadblocks for regular voters to actually use their right to vote. In your years of working in this initiative, how often have you run up into the more voter-centric obstacles people have faced? Very often. And very often we hear people say, you know, it really doesn't matter. You know, my vote really isn't going to count. We already know what the outcome is. And um, so for people in the League of Women Voters, we don't go for that. We know how many elections are are so, so close, not even 100 votes, sometimes 10 votes, sometimes even a tie. So every vote can matter. And we really think that every voter should think that their vote is as important as anyone else's. You know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I've stayed on the sidelines for my fair share of elections back in the day. What do you say to people like my younger self who, you know, say that they're too busy to vote? I would say if you only vote once during the year, it shouldn't be it should be for the most local races because those are the ones that impact your life your daily life um and so as important you know very often we hear from people who say you know i only vote for the pre- i've actually seen people walk out of the polls and say oh i thought this was a presidential uh, election well forget it i'm just leaving then mm-hmm. and that's to me is really startling that people don't understand that who they elect and the choices that those elected officials make really impact everything that they do in their daily life. Now, Tequila, the Equity Alliance specializes in grassroots civic engagement and voter mobilization for the African-American community. What have you learned about the primary reasons why people don't vote? We specialize in community engagement and organizing and utilizing voting as a tool. Um, it just depends. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this story. A couple of years ago, I was in Chicago and I was meeting with a group of guys who were Hebrew Israelites. Um, and we did a, 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 
a panel, so to speak, around why they felt like it was useless for black people to vote. Mm. And it was eye opening for me because in that conversation, there were some older gentlemen who weren't a part of their group that did vote. And there were some younger and middle aged gentlemen who felt like we've been voting for years. Right. And nothing has changed. And as they they wrestled with why we don't vote, why we don't vote, why we don't vote. The youngest guy in the room raised his hand and said, if I'm being honest, I don't vote because I don't even understand how my vote impacts the system. Mm. And so there a light bulb went off in my head and I realized that it wasn't enough to just mobilize people around voting. But we had to get people understanding the democratic process and how America as a system is structured. And then we had to give people the option of whether or not they wanted to vote and how they wanted to participate and how they wanted to show up in the process, which is something that black people haven't oftentimes had. We've either been told you can't vote or you got to vote because your people died for it, but never said, what do you care about? And let me show you how this tool voting can help impact that. And so what I've learned is people, one, feel fatigued. That's one of the reasons why younger black people don't show up to vote, because look around the tradition, the, the, the our community, the conditions in our communities aren't changing hmm. yet. We're constantly being told to vote four, five, seven, eight, ten times out of a year. And we're sick of it. Hmm. I'm sick of it. And I do this for a living. I, I voted late because I, I struggled to get to the polls. Mm-hmm. So it is a real thing. So education and fatigue and like I think that fatigue can be changed with holding electors accountable. You said something I found really interesting that people didn't know about the basic system or civics. When I went to school, we learned civics every year from first grade all the way to graduation. Now it's a semester, even if students are allowed that. So how important is it? And let me ask you this directly, Tequila. How have people been responding to you all giving them this education, this crash course in civics to understand the power of their vote and how the system works? So that's why we have really made our outreach very um community specific because what we do is what my grandma used to say put the medicine in the milk we make it very culturally relevant so I'm not coming to you like a bill on a hill talking about the things that you would hear in your traditional civics course I'm talking about hair weave rap music legalizing marijuana the things that people in our communities within our culture want to see change to try and alleviate some of the, the barriers that have been put in place by the system so I'm because I'm from that community and I've experienced those hardships, I'm able to have real conversations with them and say, look, you may not be able to change a a, a super federal law right now, but we can get bus stops you know, make sure the bus stops on in your community work and we can call this person right now and make it happen. We can look at how code, how codes and zoning um, contribute to gentrification in your neighborhood based on local politics. And once they see themselves in that process, I, I've done it. And it's a hard process because it's slow. But once you take two or three people and they start to see the impact that they have. It's it's eye opening. It's amazing. Now, early on the show, our guest Shayla Dare said that she just didn't believe that her vote would matter, mm-hmm. that the system is not thinking about her or people like her. Debbie, what do you say to that? You know, I think it's it's really tough to convince people. But, you know, what one of the things I always tell people is I said, you know, even if you think that your vote doesn't matter, what we do know 
is just realistically, if um, if a candidate gets 80 percent of the votes, 75 percent of the votes, they act very differently than if they got 51 percent of the votes mm-hmm. because they know who's out there and who their community is. And so I think part of this is is raising yourself up as a community and saying, I'm here paying attention to me. And I think that's a lot of what Tequila was talking about, that you, you want to be noticed. You want to be recognized as somebody who matters. Yeah, it's interesting the speeches you hear from candidates when they have the quote-unquote mandate according to the, their winning percentage right. share as opposed to those who just slid through. They always mention that they're going to govern with everyone in mind, not just their constituents and supporters. Well, you know, how can people who have every right to think that the system is ignoring them, how can they be convinced to become active in elections, Debbie? Well, uh, you know, sometimes we think, um, and I think sometimes in civics classes this comes across, is that the only way that we can communicate, the only way that we participate in a democracy is by voting. And that's not true. It's just one of the ways. And so realistically, even if you are not a voter, you still can talk to your metro councilman. They're still there. They're still representing your community, and they need to be listened to. So, you know, I, th- I think that really expanding all the ways that you can be part of a community and be part of community organizations that are raising up issues are all important ways to be involved. And that that does lead to voting because then you see how important the issues are. So for this episode, we tried to solicit community input. We wanted to hear from folks in our community who chose not to vote. Perhaps unsurprisingly, we didn't really get many bites. You know, it just makes me wonder how much shame has to do with this. I mean, we all we all heard Shayla previously, who who got incredibly honest, raw, and authentic and emotional about how she feels about this. And that really has something to do with the stigma or shame that people are often given when they choose not to vote. Do you think we have a problem with shaming people who don't exercise their right to vote, Tequila? Yeah, I think we have a problem with shaming people who do vote. I think council culture is real and it's alive and the influence of social media and just the media in general causes people to feel isolated and unheard. And I think that happens all around. And I think that's probably the problem with politics is we have taken the humanity out of politics and made it about this or that, red or white, blue, black or white. And the reality is, at the end of the day, if you see someone on the side of the road harmed, you're not going to care if they're a Republican or a Democrat, if they voted or not. You're going to care about if they need to be helped. And I think that's what we have to get back to is restoring power to people. People need to understand. And and I struggle with this, too, as a voting rights advocate. Uh, It's just understanding that I am a part of the system. America is my country just as much as it is anybody else's country. And I deserve to have a piece of ownership with my voice in this country. Debbie, how can we combat the shame that Tequila is expressing that people feel that we castigate upon folks who choose not to vote? Well, I think part of it, you know, one of the things we do know is that guilt is not a very good motivator for voting. It is just a dead end. And Really, what we want to do is help people have the tools so that they're comfortable voting, so they have the information. You know, when League of Women Voters started, that actually started six months before women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And the idea was 
it's not enough to have the right to vote if you don't know what to do with it. And if you don't understand the issues and what are the problems in your community and what you think are solutions, then, you know, there's no point in it. So I think helping people work in that direction to get what they need is enormously helpful. We got a tweet at This Is Nashville from Rachel Kessner, who has been a guest on the show. Quote, I'd like to try to vote as often as I can, but every time I do, I can't help but notice that there are very few issues that I care about talked about by candidates. It makes me angry and sad, but I refuse to let them erase me because of my disability. Tequila, does that sound familiar? I mean, that candidates aren't talking about what matters to the people who might vote for them? Absolutely. And my advice to her is become a candidate. Mm. Run for office. If you're not seeing equitable representation on the ballot, then that is just a sign that maybe you should put yourself out there or recruit someone who cares about your issues. That's the beauty of democracy. The same way people get seated, they can get unseated. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we did hear from one anonymous community member. They wrote that our show and our WPLN newsroom in general, that we need to do a better job in serving our region and not just Nashville. And, you know, I wonder how much news coverage helps or hurts voter turnout especially as in less metropolitan areas. Now, Tequila, you all have been through all parts of the state in your voter mobilization efforts. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think it's a it's a double-edged sword. There are going to be times where it's helpful. There are going to be times where it's hurtful. The thing that I do appreciate about this segment is that you do try to go into the community and talk to people who aren't like myself, right, who don't have a, a platform to go out and talk about these issues. And I think that that's a step in the right direction. But what I think we need to do is we need to bring more people along with us. You know, oftentimes I'm always asked to appear on the news or talk about things. And I, I oftentimes challenge them to say, what about other people? Because I, too, want to hear from other people. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about who votes in our state and who doesn't. Now, southern states tend to have much stricter voting requirements than the rest of the country. Tequila in Tennessee, you all, you have to have a fo- fo- photo ID, pardon me, to vote. Is that a barrier for African Americans here in the state? Absolutely. That's a barrier for all people, especially poor people. And what we know about our our state, if we want to talk about regional um, impact, is that even in the rural counties where they tend to be a little bit more white, um, they also have a problem with voter ID and access to the voting booth. Um, Hospitals are closing and these are things that are all in all indicators indicators of what our legislator puts first Mm -hmm. and obviously is not hearing from their constituents. Yeah, uh, Debbie, what obstacles are people running into trying to get registered to vote in Tennessee? Well, I'd like to pick up on something that Tequila just mentioned. So one of the things that we've, we're concerned about is we know there are a growing number of people who don't have a driver's license for a variety of reasons. Car's too expensive, don't need it because of an Uber, who knows, lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. But yet it's really hard in rural areas to get a driver's license, to get a photo ID if uh, a non-driving photo ID, 31 of the 95 counties don't even have a DMV that can issue it. So we know that there are people, so it's not just an urban problem, it's all across the state. There are people who need a photo ID and who don't have it and who need it. Now, in 2020, I came across a document from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It called for 31 recommendations to 
modernized the Constitution. Here's one that really stood out to me. I've been trumpeting it ever since. It's Recommendation 2.2 from the document. Quote, change the federal election day to Veterans Day to honor the service of veterans and the sacrifices that they've made in defense of our constitutional democracy and to ensure that voting can occur on a date that many people have off from work. Align state election calendars with this new federal election day, end quote. Tequila, what do you think of that idea? I think it's an amazing idea. I think they should make it a ballot initiative. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm all for people's voices being heard. I'm all for honoring the sacrifices that veterans have made to our country. And I'm all for amending the Constitution that didn't think that I should even be sitting here today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Debbie? I think it's a great idea. You know, there are countries all around the world that make Election Day a holiday. And I think that that is an enormous, um, enormous step forward that this country could take. You know, they they go on with a few other recommendations like uh, same day is national same day registration, universal automatic registration and the pre-registration of 16 and 17 year olds. Mm -hmm. Debbie, tell me, what laws would you like to see changed to make it easier for people to vote? Well, I do think that... We now know that there are lots of states that do same-day registration. It's no longer a a technical barrier. I think that that would be an enormous help. Um, Certainly um, making sure that it's easier for people to get an ID that they can use to vote would be a huge step. And, And in our state, changing how absentee voting works. Why is it that you have to have a special category in order to even request an absentee ballot. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's an absentee ballot. It works just like any other ballot. You know, I've got this personal philosophy of mine that I think that we should treat voting like jury duty. Because if you get a notice to appear to jury duty, you have to or you face, face some legal consequences. In my personal opinion, I think we should treat voting the same way. Like if it's this premier right of being a citizen, we should Treat it with that same respect. You're not forced to vote for anyone in particular, but you have to participate. How does that sound to you, Tequila? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get where you're coming from, but I I just think that forcing people to do anything in a country that has been so forceful since its inception is just, I don't know, it just, it's triggering. It might be a good idea. It may get more people out or we might realize a lot of people don't vote the way we think they would. Mm-hmm. What do you want people to know about the, the right to vote and how precious it is? Um, I just want people to understand that in America, everything that America's built on is built on democracy, which is fueled by voting. And especially in southern states where we vote for everything from sidewalks to mailboxes to every single thing. I, I mean, there is not anything that you can point to in your life that is not governed by a policy. And every policy that is implemented is implemented by a policymaker that you chose to vote for or not vote for. Mm -hmm. Tequila Johnson is with the Equity Alliance. She was joined by Debbie Gold from the League of Women's Voters Nashville chapter. I want to thank both of you for being here. Thank you for the work you're doing and thank you for this conversation. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll talk about the National Day of Mourning with members of our local Native American communities. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the 
masterminds behind our theme music, Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Blaze Ganey and Paige Flager. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville, find us on Instagram, and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>